Thank you, Angela and the team. And it's so good to be able to welcome everyone here this morning to our uh, meeting here at Christ Central Church, 140 Clark Street. And if you're joining us online, uh, great to have you join us as well. We do hope that you are blessed this morning, that God speaks and encourages us. He already has been, I think. And uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here. And we've been going through the book of Acts over the last number of months. Today I want to look at Acts chapter 12. And this is a kind of interlude in the story. If you're following with us, you'll know that in Acts 11, we started to focus on the city of Antioch and see what was happening there. And then that account picks up again in Acts 13. And last week, Joe spoke on Acts 13 just to follow on from Acts 11, just to keep that whole Antioch narrative together. But here, as Luke writes it, we have chapter 12, which is a little bit of an interlude in the story. And we're going to see what's happening with King Herod and with Peter. And uh, I'm going to ask a question at the end of reading this passage. So I'll give you a chance to have a little think about it. But I'm going to ask you a question. And it's, um, what do you think the big pastoral question in this passage that comes to mind is? What's the big pastoral question that strikes you? You might have any number of questions, but there's one that struck me, which we're going to look at this morning. But we'll read the passage first. Acts chapter 12, um, and we'll read the whole chapter. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he had proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Peter, Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was really doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice, and she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. 
Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod didn't give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. All right, so this is quite an exciting chapter, really. There's lots of action in it, quite a bit of humor, uh, finishing off with the classical moment, which I heard a few people uh, do over here, when Herod is eaten up by worms. Um, But there's one big question which stood out to me as I read it. So it's a question that many people might ask about things that happen in their lives too. That's why I said it was a pastoral question. I wonder if anyone can guess what that question might be. Anyone want to take a guess? What question strikes you when you read that passage? There might be lots of things. Someone said to me after the last meeting, they said, my question was, did the worms eat Herod before he was buried or after he was buried? Did they kind of just come upon the stage and just... Or is it that he was put in the ground and then the worms ate him? That wasn't the question I had in mind. <laughs> Any, anyone want to give it, a, give it a shot? Or shall I just... They were very surprised God had answered their prayers. I think they were very surprised. Yeah. wonder why you think that was. All right, the question that I had was this. Why does God allow James to be killed? And then he rescues Peter. So James gets arrested by Herod, and he's put to death by the sword. And then Peter gets arrested, and an angel sets him free. That's, that's quite a difficult question. And it's not just like an, it wasn't just an intellectual question for the people who were there at the time, because imagine John, the Apostle John. He's the brother of James, and he's the friend of Peter. The three of them were together with Jesus all the time. They went up to the Mount of Transfiguration together. They were always together. They were were almost like the inner circle of Jesus. And so Peter gets rescued, and you might think, yeah, of course, because Jesus really loved him. But James gets killed. Oh, well, what does that mean? Does that mean God couldn't set James free? And why didn't he set James free? And did he not love James as much as he loved Peter? These are all questions which might be going through some of the disciples' minds. Some of those questions might go through our minds as well. You know, John would have been thrilled that Peter had been rescued, but he would have been grieving for his brother who's been murdered. How does he reconcile the two? And we might feel Similarly, in different circumstances, maybe we're sick or we have someone who we really love who is sick and we pray for healing, but healing doesn't come. Maybe the person we love dies and yet someone else is prayed for and they miraculously get healed by God. And we can be thrilled that they've got healed, but we can be thinking, but why not the person who I loved? Or why not me? 
It's been great to celebrate with people here this morning. It's been great to celebrate with you guys. You've got your permanent residency. You're allowed to stay in the country. But what about those who are denied and have to leave? And actually, you felt you might be in that boat at one point. So you've been through some of those emotions. You know, great that family members are able to come back. And we're praying for family members to come back to Canada. But what about those who aren't able to? and who are separated, maybe by COVID, maybe for many, many months, even years. These questions are very real, and they're different things for different people. Debbie and I suffered, have suffered with infertility. Infertility brings huge pain for people, often hidden pain. Maybe others don't even realize things are going on yet, and then all around people are having babies, and sometimes it's like they're not even wanting to have babies, and they're having babies, and all sorts of things, and there's, there's real joy and celebration with people, a new life that's coming and that's been given by God, but yet there's pain and hardship and questions. Why? Why, God? These questions can often be very real and very raw. So what's the answer? What's the answer to this question? Why Peter and not James? Well, we search the scriptures to get insight into questions like this. Now, sometimes we, honestly, we just have to say, I don't know. We just don't know. Sometimes it's easier not to try and give answers. But actually, scripture does give us insight into things. We may not get a full understanding. We may not understand exactly why God has done certain things in our lives or the lives of others. But we can understand something of God from the scriptures. So I'm going to look at one verse that the Bible speaks about in these kind of things. And before I do, I just wanted to encourage us, let's not dismiss this before you hear me out. Because this is a verse that often gets quoted to people in very unhelpful ways and can often cause more pain and hurt. And maybe that's happened to you, so it could be difficult for you to hear. But I want us to look more fully at what this verse is saying. And the verse is Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 28. And it's this. And we know, says Paul, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to Christ Jesus. Uh, been called according to his purpose. I'll say that again. Quote it properly. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to to his purpose. Now, as I said, if someone's in a lot of pain, quoting this verse totally out of context is probably not going to bless them. If someone's had a family member who has suddenly uh, passed away or been killed tragically or died young, you, uh, it's probably not the first thing that you go and tell them, oh, well, in all things God works together for good. That is not going to be helpful. What people want is for you to come and grieve with them and mourn and weep. But this verse is in the Bible, and it is there to encourage us. And it's written by Paul to a church in Rome who the context was they were going through a lot of suffering themselves, and Paul was writing this to encourage them. So what's Paul trying to say? He's trying to help them see that in everything in life, in all things that they go through, God is sovereign. God is at work. God is in control. And that God does love us. So we're going to look at this passage in Acts 12 and see, well, what's the big picture of what was going on, what God is doing here? But before we do that, let's just look a little bit more detail at how the, how the early church 
might have seen and responded to these events that were going on. I'm going to call that the view from below. So sometimes we, we only have a limited perspective. We see things from down here on Earth, and we're, I don't understand it. And then we're going to look at what um, maybe the view from above is. And Luke gives us a bit of an insight into that. And even though we don't understand everything, we might get a better view from above. But first of all, the view from below. Like I said, from the church's perspective, as things were going on, it would have been hard to see exactly what's going on here. Because things started off so well in the church. You know, that everyone, get the Spirit falls at Pentecost. People get um, filled with the Spirit. They're all speaking in, in different languages. Others come and ask what's going on. They all get saved as Peter preaches the gospel. The church starts. People are being blessed. People are being helped um, with their material needs. All sorts of good things are happening. Um, and then suddenly... It seems as though God's enemies begin to gain the upper hand again. So Stephen gets killed. He gets stoned to death, martyred. And then the big attack comes on the church, and they all have to scatter. People are, have to flee their homes, leave their possessions behind. They go all over the known world. And then persecution still is happening. Before it was with the Jews, but now it seems like King Herod's getting in on the act, and he's a Roman. He's the um, grandson of Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa. But he's getting in on the act, and he arrests James. Well, he's one of the key leaders in the church. He's one of the key apostles, and he's put to death. That's just going to really discourage the early church at that point. And before the church has even got time to grieve, Peter too is arrested, and he's put in prison. And Herod's intending to put him on public trial and kill him as well, to really make a, a show of his death. So what is the church to do at that point? What's the church's response? Well, it says the church's response was to pray. And that's always a good response in any situation, that we come to God and that we pray. We pray in all circumstances. But, you know, had they not been praying for James, I would imagine, of course, they've been praying for James as well. They would have actually probably been praying for James with quite a bit of faith, because if you remember back in Acts 5, and some of us who were here when we explained that on, uh, on that morning, some of us acted it all out, some, the apostles were put in prison, and what happened? An angel of the Lord came and set them all free, and they all went back out preaching again. So, the apostles and the church, when that happened, are probably, this happens with James, are probably thinking, hey, let's come and we'll pray and we're going to see that happen again. We've already seen God do it once. He's going to do it again. But that doesn't happen. And James is put to death. I'm sure they would have been praying with faith and expectation, but it just seems as though their prayers aren't answered. And then Peter gets arrested. I wonder how James's death changed the way the church prayed for Peter. I wonder how it changed what they prayed for Peter. It doesn't say what they prayed. Hazel's pointed out it doesn't really seem as though they were praying with a lot of expectation that Peter was going to be set free. Now, they've seen it happen before, but now they've seen James die and James not be set free. It would have been difficult. 
When we were in the church back in the UK, in Sheffield, we had seen God heal many people of miraculous things. We had a period of time when God was healing people of all sorts of things. It was amazing, so encouraging to live through that time. And then a seven-year-old boy who was a close friend of us as a family, but a seven-year-old boy well-known in the church, got very sick with leukemia, and we prayed for him for over a year. And miraculously, he's having treatment, he's having chemotherapy. It, the doctors didn't give him a lot of hope, but it, miraculously, it seemed that he'd been healed. Well, he was healed. He was totally clear of cancer. The scans showed it. We were rejoicing as a church. We were celebrating God at work, obviously, using the um, surgeons and using the um, medical um, advancement, but we were like, wonderful, he's been healed. And then a few months later, the news came, well, the cancer's come back. And so we prayed again and we prayed every week, every week uh, together as a church. And individuals obviously praying, praying all the time. And then a short while later, little Dan died. And the church are coming to terms with it. And then two or three months later, the church is still coming to terms with this. Our church leader, Arnold, goes into hospital. He's got this cough. It's persistent. It won't go. He finds out it's cancer. He dies two days, three days later. So the church, we've seen these healings. We believe God can do it. We've seen him do it. And yet, within a few months, he's taken a young boy. He's taken our church leader. So how easy is it to pray for the next person who comes who's sick? It's not easy. It's not easy. They're real battles to face. How easy is it for us to have faith for people to get healed, for ourselves to be healed if we've suffered the disappointment of not being in the past or seeing others who haven't been? I wonder how much faith Peter had in prison. How much faith did he have that he'd be healed? He's been released. He's been released before, but now he's seen James die. Well, is he resigned to his fate? We don't know. Sometimes when our prayers aren't answered, we come to God with lower expectations of him in the future. We don't want to be hurt again. So we pray and we know God can do a miracle, but do we really believe he will? Sometimes we get to the point where we just feel, I can't pray at all. I just can't pray. Like Hazel said, I don't see a lot of hope from people in this passage that Peter's going to get out. I mean, Peter himself is asleep between two guards. Okay, he's asleep. I mean, he's not worshiping. He's not praying. He's not calling on God. He's just asleep. And suddenly... A light shines in his cell as the angel appears. And then the angel comes and wakes him up by hitting him. <laughs> sometimes, those of us who've got teenage children will know putting the light on doesn't always work. You've just sometimes got to come and hit them as well. Wake up. <laughs> and the chains fall off Peter's wrists. And the angel says, put your clothes and your sandals on. And the cloak, that's all good advice, by the way, knowing what's coming next. And, and Peter does that. He's still kind of half asleep. 
oh, he's thinking it's a vision. It's like a dream to him. And they walk, the angel and Peter walk past all these guards and, and the doors open on their own. He's thinking he's dreaming it. It's only when they've gone down a whole street and the angel disappears that Peter finds himself standing in this street, probably in the middle of the night, just thinking, oh, okay, that was real. I'm here. I've been set free. It suddenly comes to him. God's rescued him. God's set him free. How much did Peter have to do with that? How much input did Peter have to do with his rescue? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't even realize he was being free. Well, he put his clothes on. That was it. <laughs> That's the way with us, with salvation. Sometimes we talk about our story, and we say, oh, well, this is how I found Jesus, as though somehow Jesus was lost. We didn't find Jesus. He found us. He rescued us. The Bible says he came to us when we were still sinners. In other parts, it says we were dead in our sin. We were dead. Dead people cannot save themselves. I remember a number of years ago, we were on vacation, and uh, my son Joshua was three years old, and um, there was a swimming pool, and we were all sitting around it. And he suddenly stood up, this little three-year-old, and uh, he, you know, he started walking towards the pool. Now, he couldn't swim, and he didn't have any kind of floaters or anything, whatever you call it, on, on his arms. And I just kind of was watching him, thinking, what's he doing? And he walked to the pool, and he walked down the steps, and he walked down all the steps, and he just sank. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my word. So I leapt up and grabbed him and pulled him out of the pool. He did nothing to contribute towards himself being saved. He was walking to his death. And I had to reach down and pull him out. And that's what God does to us. We are dead people walking. And God reaches down and he grabs us and he saves us. And he rescues us. And we have, you know, we don't have a lot to contribute. And Peter didn't have a lot to contribute to being rescued. And he goes to the house where many of the church have gathered and are praying for him. And you think, oh, well, you know, at least they're going to be, they're going to be thrilled to see him because they've been praying that he gets set free. Oh, is that what they've been praying? Well, is, have they been praying that? Maybe they were praying that he would just die a good death. Maybe they were praying for him that he would have courage when he's put on trial in front of people, maybe they were praying, oh God, even when he dies, let him speak your words of truth. We don't know what they were praying for him, but it doesn't seem like they were praying with any kind of faith or belief that Peter would be set free by God because when he knocks on the door and the servant Rhoda goes and says, who is it? And he goes, it's Peter here. She goes, it's Peter. And she goes back and she tells them, they say, you must be out of your mind. Well, what are they praying for? You must be out of your mind. She's going, no, it really is Peter. And, and they say to her, it can't be. It must be his angel. Like they've got more faith that an angel is standing outside the door than Peter. Even though they know God's done that before. Nobody here seems to have a lot of faith that Peter is going to be set free. But he is. Because God can do 
immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. So even if they weren't imagining he was going to be set free, even if they weren't asking that he would be set free, God did it. Because God is sovereign. And God does what he wants to do. He does what's in line with his plans and purposes. Paul explains it in his first letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 11. He says this, In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. In other words, God chose us. We were chosen. We didn't choose him. And it's all part of his plan, which he works out according to what he wants to do. We find that hard to get our heads around because it, it can seem as though we have nothing at all to do with it. And actually, God involves us. He does use us, and it's, it's a bit more complicated. I'm kind of simplifying it somewhat because God does use us, and, and we are involved, and we do make decisions. But do you know what? It's all part of God's plan because God is the one who's in control. God is God. That brings comfort, actually, some people don't like it. Some people don't like to hear that. Do you know what? I find it much more comforting to know that God is in control of my life than to think that I am. Because I know that I mess things up. And I know that it's not dependent on how much I pray or how good I am or how spiritual I am or how much I love God. Actually, it's dependent on how much God loves me and how holy he is, and how faithful he is. And he's ultimately all faithful, all loving, all powerful. And that brings a lot of comfort, because it's not about me. It's not about me. Okay, that's the view from below. Let's draw the lens back to try and get a bigger picture. And as I say, we're not going to get a full picture. I can't explain everything that God was doing, but hopefully God will give us a fuller perspective. Luke's writing this story with the benefit of hindsight, and often you can look back and see, well, what has God done? You can see more of the big picture even in our lives. Now we can see God's plan for us to adopt uh, two wonderful children. We couldn't see that in the pain of infertility. And actually, that pain doesn't always go away. It, it hasn't gone away. There's still pain there, but yet you can see God's plan. Years later, God had us move to Canada, and we really felt God was calling us to come here, um, and there was going to be a whole lot of obstacles, a bit like you guys, you know, with the obstacles to take to come here, but we felt that God, we'd overcome those, and God was at work, and then suddenly, we find God takes us to Ontario. Now, Ontario, I'm sure, is a wonderful place, but it wasn't where we felt God was calling us to be, and it was hard. We were there 18 months. It was difficult. We didn't understand why we were there. Surely God's called us to come to Fredericton. In hindsight, we can see some of God's purposes in, in it. We quickly got a family doctor there, and she spotted a cancer that Debbie had got in her thyroid, which was then operated on by one of the best specialists in the whole of Canada. She's completely cancer-free. Now, I don't think we, that would have been spotted here because we would have probably not even got a family doctor yet. I'm sure there's many other reasons as well that we don't see. Often things in our life we don't see until later on. What's Luke's bigger perspective here? Actually, if you look at this passage, Luke, his main focus isn't on the death of James. 
he only just mentions it in passing in one verse. Oh, yeah, James was arrested and he was killed. Whew, that seems like big news to me, Luke. Why are you just doing one verse on it? His main focus isn't even on Peter, to be honest, in this passage. Yes, Peter gets set free and there's all of this goes on and it's a and it's, it's great story. Actually, the main thing that Luke's focus is on is on what God is doing in King Herod. King Herod. So what is God doing? Well, right at the start, we see that Herod is setting himself up to be more powerful than God. Herod is wanting to show people that he could stamp out this new Christian movement by killing one of its main leaders. And he does. And he thinks, not even their God could stop me. So I'm, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to get another one of their leaders. And this time, because I, I've got some popularity now with the Jews, because the Jews were opposed to Christians as well, some of them. Um, and so he's like, I've got some popularity with this group of people, so um, I'm going I'm to arrest Peter. And then I'm, I'm going to wait till the Passover's over. And it's just at the time when Jesus himself died. It was probably not a coincidence. So we're going to get Peter and we're going to put him on trial and we're going to publicly make a, a mockery of him and we're going to kill him. And it's going to put to death this Christian movement. And, you know, I'm going to show that I am more powerful than anyone. That's what's going on in Herod's mind. But God has other plans. God is going to teach Herod a lesson. It's not that God couldn't have saved James. He could have done. But God had different plans for James. Actually, in Mark chapter 9, we see that God's got different plans for James. Because James is talking about Jesus' death. And, um, and Jesus says, you know, can you die the death that I'm going to die? And James says, yeah, I, I can. And, and Jesus says, actually, you will. He, he says there in Mark chapter 9, you will, James. That was God's plan for, for James's life, that actually he was going to give glory to God in his death. But God wanted to show Herod that no one's more important powerful than him. No ruler is more powerful than him. No one can take God's place. No earthly king can come and usurp King Jesus. And so God sovereignly sets Peter free, not because he loves Peter more than James, not because the church were full of faith that Peter would be set free and they weren't with James, because he did it because it was part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan, and he wanted to demonstrate to the rulers and authorities that his power resided in the church and not in the leaders. So God puts Herod in his place. He wants to humble him. Jesus said in Luke 14, he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now Herod, his big show, it just looks ridiculous. Bring out the prisoner. He's not here, he's gone. What a humiliation. Where's he gone? Let's investigate. In interrogate all the guards. We don't know. We don't know what happened. He has the guards executed. Blames them. Even then, Herod still wasn't humbled. He goes to a different area, to Caesarea. And there's a group of people who come and meet with him. And they've been in conflict with him. They've been dependent on Herod for their food supply. They're not getting any food. They need to come to talk to Herod. They need to persuade him and plead with him, Herod, please give us some food. We are dying here. Herod is setting himself up 
as provider. God is the provider of our food, but Herod is saying, no, no, I provide your food. So Herod comes and he sits himself on this throne and he puts his royal robes on and he makes himself look like a god and he starts to give this big speech and these people are here and they're hungry and they're like, we, need to, we just need to somehow persuade him. And so what do they do? He's giving this speech and they're like going, oh, oh, you're speaking. You're like a god. This isn't even the words of a man. It's like the words of a god. Well, it's no wonder they're saying that because he's acting like a god and they're having to come to him like they come to God. But Herod doesn't correct them. You remember in Acts 10 when Cornelius bows down before Peter and Peter says, no, 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 stand up, I'm only a man. But Herod's loving it. Herod's just like, oh, yes. He's loving the adulation. He's loving being thought of as a God. And so the angel of the Lord shows up again. And this time he's setting no one free. He strikes Herod down dead. And Herod's eaten by worms. And whether he's eaten by worms in front of them all, or whether he dies and is buried and he's eaten by worms, it really doesn't matter because Luke's making the point here. Luke's making the point that if you set yourself up as greater than God, you're weaker than a worm. A worm's going to eat you. You think you're so good, you think you're so powerful, and yet a worm is going to eat you. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and no one is going to take his place. And all through the Bible, God shows rulers that. He shows it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he's in charge of everything. God puts him in his place. Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's exalting himself as God, and a voice comes from God and says, You will eat grass like an ox. He goes mad. Until you have learned that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. I'm going to put you in your place and you make out that you're so amazing and so brilliant and you're going to be like a crazy man because I am God. That's what God does. God makes it clear that he is God. He is Lord of all. And on the day when Jesus returns, we hear that every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone's going to know it. Because today there's still many who don't know it. And they should be in godly fear. Because Jesus wants it known that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not only earthly powers, heavenly powers. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, who to? To the rulers, to the authorities, in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even the rulers in the heavenly realms are to know through God working through the church, that he is Lord of Lord. And it's his purposes. And that's what God does with Herod. And it says the word of God continued to spread 
and flourish. In other words, the gospel kept advancing. People continued being saved, added to the church. The spirit continued to be poured out. God's plan of salvation went on unabated. That's the view from above. That's what's going on in this passage. It doesn't take away those questions that we might have, because we're here below, and we're like, well, what about James, and what about Peter, and how does that? But God has a bigger picture, and we might not know the full picture. Only God has that knowledge, but it's enough. Paul knows enough to say, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose in all things. And you might say, well, that's okay for Paul to say. What does he know? Actually, (laughs) quite a lot. If you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what Paul's experience is of suffering. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Don't get on the ship. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And then he says, on top of all that, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Whew. Paul knows a bit about suffering. He knows a bit about suffering. And he says with confidence, we know in all things in being pelted with stones and shipwrecks and danger and hunger and nakedness and cold. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Wow. To be able to say that, I mean, can you get your head around it? It's hard, isn't it? Wow. Paul also knows what the future holds for those in Christ who have suffered. He knows there's reward. Jesus says, blessed are those you when you're persecuted, for my name's sake. Special blessings for people like James. He knows there's a day coming when we'll all be united with Jesus, when there'll be no more pain and suffering and sorrow and mourning and death. It's all going to be gone. We'll be united with Jesus face to face. We'll be rewarded for faithfulness, perseverance. He says to the Corinthians again, He says, do you know what? These light and momentary troubles, light and momentary, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of those things. It outweighs all that list, Paul, that you've just done. Yes. The big picture is God's at work. His word continues to spread and flourish. Paul's understood some of it. Now, he he probably hasn't understood it all. He talks about things that he endures. He says, I prayed several times for the thorn in the flesh to go and God didn't take it away. You can't always see everything in the moment. But when you get the big picture, you can. And he's trying to help the church to do the same. It's not that God doesn't care about individuals. It's not that God doesn't care about James and he he loves Peter more. He cares about us. That's why he saves us. That's why he came for us. That's why we have an eternity with him. That's why we're part of his family. 
And he's not wanting to just diminish or dismiss our struggles and our pains and our suffering and say, oh, get over it, it'll be okay. You've... He's not saying that either. Jesus came as a man of sorrows to identify with us in our suffering. He gives us his spirit as the comforter to be with us in what we go through. But the truth of God's word tells us that some of us will glorify God in our suffering, maybe even in our death. And some of us will glorify God in our life and by God working miraculously and rescuing us. Have you ever read Hebrews 11? There's a list of people who God commends for their faith. It goes through all the people in the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, others, Moses. And then it gets to verse 33, and it says this. Some, he says, there's others who I haven't got time to talk about, and then he talks about them. He says, some by faith shut the mouth of lions. Wow. Quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. And then he goes to say, some by faith were tortured faced jeers and floggings, even chains and imprisonments. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Oh, they're, they're living by faith as well? He says, yeah. These were all commended for their faith. They were all commended for their faith. Our limited perspective finds it hard to understand those verses. Surely faith means we overcome, we triumph. Surely it means we escape. Surely it means we're saved. Surely it means we're healed. No. Faith means that whatever happens in our life, we believe and we trust in God. We believe and trust that he's with us. That's what Hazel said to us this morning so helpfully. We're hemmed in by God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So this morning... Let me encourage us, and I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else, to put our hope in God, to believe that we're truly loved by him, to know that we are saved, to know that we are his dearly loved children. Let's believe that God is at work, is sovereign in our lives and in the church. He will accomplish his purposes in and through us, whatever our circumstances. And we can pray to him, and we can worship him, and we can know the joy of the Lord in all of these things. Why don't we stand together as Angela and the band come back up and just lead us in a final song, and we're going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice, and some of us might be rejoicing in the good things that God's done, and some of us might be rejoicing despite hardships, but together we can rejoice because God is God and he's on the throne. Father God, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truth of your word. We don't, God, we have to wrestle with this, Lord. I, I, you don't mind us asking the questions that we have. But Lord, I thank you. Do, I pray, encourage us, as, encourage us this morning in the truth of your word, in who you are, in that you are Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And Lord, we worship you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.